Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome everybody to our special event tonight on the US presidential election and the left. Now, I know many of us, many people around the world indeed, have been glued to our screens watching um, the results come in. And what we wanted to do tonight, with at least a little bit of time elapsing since those results seem to have become clear, we wanted to consider what the results tell us about the changing basis of voting behaviour and what they mean in particular for the left, both in the United States and beyond. And to do that, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome an excellent panel. We've got uh, two prominent people, a prominent scholar, Professor Jeff Manza, and a prominent activist, Jennifer Epps Anderson. Addison, I'm sorry. And we're going to, I'm going to introduce them both briefly. They're going to speak in turn so I'll just introduce them both now. So Jeff Manza is professor of sociology at New York University. He studied at Berkeley and for a long time, his work has been focused on political sociology, inequality, public policy, and the interaction between all those things. And his books are testimony to this. Many of you or some of you may have come across his work on social cleavages and political change. He's worked on felon disenfranchisement and its effect on American democracy. And he's also the coordinator of something called the Sociology Project, an innovative textbook, um, which is a reflection, I think, of the seriousness with which he engages in teaching. He's also got so many articles that it's embarrassing, but I'll just mention a few of them that are relevant tonight. Ethno-nationalism and the rise of Donald Trump, class divisions and political attitudes in the 21st century, and why aren't Americans more angry about rising inequality? Our second speaker is Jennifer Epps Addison. She's president and also one of the co-directors of the Center for Global Democracy, a network of, I think, 43 state organizations, um, all of which are committed to both a pro-worker, a pro-immigrant, and a racial justice agenda. And she studied at the University of Wisconsin, political science. She also studied women's studies and also law. And earlier on worked as an attorney in the public defender's office in the state of Wisconsin. Well, since then, she's had some two decades of experience organizing for economic and social justice, working with a range of grassroots organizations like the Campaign for $15 and Citizens Action in a number of major cities in the United States. Well, as I say, each of our speakers is gonna talk for about 20 minutes, and then we're gonna have a short period where I ask them questions, and then I'll turn it over to you, and we'll have questions and discussion initiated from the floor. Can I just ask you, if you put a question into the Q&A, to preface it by saying who you are and, and where you're from, either institutionally or geographically or both, because it's helpful to our, our audience. Well, I know our audience will join me in welcoming both our speakers here tonight. So without further ado, can I turn first to Professor Jeff Manzo? Well, thank you, Robin, uh, for the, uh, the kind introduction. Um, I, uh, like, uh, like we all do in, uh, in higher ed these days, have put together a PowerPoint uh, slide that uh, will cover a set of issues that relate both to this election, but then the kind of the larger kind of trends and implications 
for for the American left. Um, so uh, uh, let's see here. This is uh, okay. So just a couple quick comments on some issues related to this uh, this particular uh, election. Um, I think without any question, it was a major stress test for American democracy and institutions. Uh, it isn't yet resolved. There is a coup attempt ongoing at the moment. The president, uh, the soon-to-be ex-president, and his some of his allies are contesting the results in a number of states. Uh, <clears throat> election officials around the country have reported uh, no evidence of any kind of fraudulent. Uh, uh, vote reporting, but nonetheless, uh, this is ongoing, and it is, I think, only uh, reinforcing things that have been going on the last four years. And I, I would just highlight uh, for an international audience in particular, but also just to remind everyone of some reasons why Trump's defeat is is important, not just for the left, but but really for for all all of all Americans. So uh, the first big point is that. Uh, under Trump, the, the kind of the corruption of democratic political institutions, particularly to the extent to which these institutions rely on norms, uh, not everything is written down and Trump's willingness to violate certain critical norms, his lying, and in particular, his use of state power to attack his enemies, one of the hallmarks of, of authoritarian regimes everywhere, uh, has 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 uh, has been a particularly salient aspect of this presidency, and had he won another four years, the deepening of those tactics, particularly the the use of state power to attack his enemies, would have likely accelerated uh, as he figured out how to get uh, his uh, his closest allies willing to do his bidding in positions of power. Trump provided a, secondly, Trump provided a platform for white supremacism and xenophobia in American public life that we have not uh, uh, seen from, from the White House for, for probably 100 years. Uh, his willingness to amplify conspiratorial ideas and paranoia, paranoid conspiracies in public life is a third really, I think, important feature of this presidency. and and. And, and although it is hard to measure, I think without any question, the, uh, the, the spreading of beliefs in various kinds of, of, of conspiracies, the so-called QAnon group and, and others have become much more powerful presences in American life than they were prior to, to Trump assuming the presidency. Uh, and then finally, Trump has had a major impact uh, on stacking federal courts. He has turned over the appointment of judges to uh, a right-wing legal group known as the Federalist Society, uh, who are uh, uh, promoting uh, uh, ideologically rigid right-wing judges. And this, uh, from the, Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest court, all the way down to lower federal courts, uh, has had and, and will have uh, for some time to come a major impact. So uh, uh, Trump is likely uh, gone soon, um, but I think it's fair to say that Trumpism is probably not dead. Um, one reason that I say this is that the rise of Donald Trump really kind of solved a problem for that conservative parties all over the world face, which is how do you compete in democracies when you promote policies that protect the interest of, of a relatively narrow slice of the population. 
And what Trump uh, did successfully in a way, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that no other uh, recent uh, Republican uh, uh, national figures have been able able to do is, is divide the electorate on race and class lines so that uh, white Americans, uh, 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 particularly working class white Americans, have, have uh, uh, realigned with, uh, with uh, the Republican Party to back Donald Trump. And this, this has, I think, or at least uh, potentially provides a solution to the, this conservative dilemma. And even after four years of his time in the White House, Americans, uh, you know, gave him 71 million votes, which is the, the largest vote total of any uh, Republican president in history. Um, and certainly, I think Trump's post-election behavior is setting himself up for a 2024 comeback. Um, if he figures out that he can make money by staying in the public sphere, uh, which is, of course, always his his number one objective. I think it's quite likely that he will continue to be very active and set himself up for a 2024 comeback when he'll be 78 years old, but uh, seems to be, uh, you know, uh, seems to be able to and want to to continue. But even if Trump isn't a future presidential candidate, it's quite likely that his influence on the Republican Party is likely to continue. Uh, the party has, I think, at the grassroots, is dominated by Trump supporters. Um, Trump himself will play an outsized role, even if he chooses not to continue uh, to pursue the presidency in the future. He has 90 million Twitter followers. He generates immense media attention with whatever he does. And especially important is his capacity to intimidate Republican politicians to get them to do his bidding as as we're seeing at this moment during this uh, attempted uh, uh, effort to overturn the results of, uh, of the election. So one thing we wanna kind of ask is, is there anything we can learn from, from this, this 2020 election and, and particularly what does it tell us about the future? So I hesitate to push too hard because we really don't have good data available. And the exit polls, because of the unique way in which this election was contested uh, with uh, large, very large percentages of people not actually voting on election day, uh, we don't really have, I think, reliable exit poll data to play with, not to mention nationally representative post-election surveys. That said, um, I think it's safe to say that we now can see very clearly certain ongoing aggregate shifts of alignment on the part of key voting blocks in the United States. So um, white men and white working class men in particular um, have been trending uh, towards the Republican Party, but, but uh, decisively so in the Trump era, both in 2016 and then again in 2020. Joe Biden may have cut into uh, Trump's advantage among working class white men to some small degree, and that may have helped him get over the top in, in the critical states in the industrial Midwest of the United States. Um, but this is, a, this is a very important long-term trend. I'm gonna say more about it in a minute. It's very striking that the poorest regions, the, the poorest counties in the United States outside of large cities all uh, have supported Trump. Uh, you know, the 25 poorest counties in the United States uh, uh, and and uh, and then and then a further uh, uh, trend, which uh, which has been widely commented on and appears to have, if 
anything accelerated in this election is uh, the move of college-educated people into, into the Democratic Party, creating a kind of classic two-lefts uh, scenario. Um, the upshot of both of these is a kind of class inversion in the social bases of the Democratic and Republican parties, where you have um, increasingly a Republican party in the Trump era uh, able to be electorally competitive by appealing uh, to uh, white working class uh, 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 voters and a Democratic party that is increasingly drawing both votes as well as uh, money and organization from college educated, relatively privileged sectors of um, the electorate. And this is something that I think unquestionably has vitally important implications for the future of the left. Um, and I'm gonna uh, kind of talk a little bit more about that uh, in a bit, but uh, it's, it's an important backdrop to kind of what has been happening over the last uh, uh, 40, you know, four decades, but in particular accelerating in the Trump era. Um, so just a brief comment about the voting behavior of women and people of color. As, uh, as we all know, uh, these uh, both women and people of color have been uh, strongly in democratic alignment since the Reagan era in the case of people of color well before that. Um, I am have pushed for a good deal of time the idea that groups significant demographic and social groups can become locked into a kind of political alignment um, at a particular critical turning point in history. And so some classical examples in the United States, the alignment of Jews with the Democratic Party during the New Deal and the uh, overwhelming alignment with, of African-Americans with uh, the Democratic Party from the 1960s onward are two classical examples. A post-1980 uh, alignment example is the heavy uh, move of evangelical Christians to the Republican Party. Um, they have probably given about 80% of their votes to, to Donald Trump, uh, which, uh, you know, was a puzzle for us in 2016, thinking about uh, a very secular guy who seemingly violates at every turn principles of of uh, evangelical Christianity, but nonetheless has been their, their champion and uh, has done remarkably well. Um, now, I think there is at least some evidence that a lock-in process is well underway for Latino voters and Asians. Um, these groups are not nearly as supportive of the Democratic Party overall as African-Americans, but nonetheless, uh, I think we can see and we've seen it now over enough electoral cycles that we can be confident that this will be the future of, um, of the Democratic Party. So that uh, when we think about where the votes come from, we're primarily looking at a party that will draw most of its votes um, from both women and then uh, people, of, people of color. Um, and because these groups are growing in size, particularly Latinos and Asians, some have projected the idea that uh, there is an inevitable Democratic Party majority in the future. Um, it's less clear uh, uh, in the case of Latinos, uh, perhaps, than, than uh, uh, we have sort of thought up till now. It looks, looks like in the exit polls, Latinos got about a third of the, uh, Trump received about a third of the Latino vote. Uh, the New York Times did a very nice county by county analysis of where votes changed between 
2012 and 2016. And the single most striking set of changes are in South Texas and South Florida, which uh, are heavily Latino areas that uh, provided significantly less support for Biden and Democratic uh, candidates across the board than was expected. And this is something that, uh, you know, is going to, um, you know, uh, require further analysis. But I, I think the big, the big point is that, uh, you know, there is an ongoing debate about the political alignment of Latinos, but I think, uh, you know, the, the general idea of a kind of a lock-in process uh, whereby this uh, kind of group identity pushes members of these groups towards the Democrats is, is entirely possible. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to, uh, okay, so I'll, I'll stop there in terms of what I wanna say about this particular election and use the rest of my time to kind of extend some of this analysis and bring in some new ideas to kind of talk a little bit about the future of the the American left, which is, which is after all, what Robin has uh, invited us to, to do. Um, and so I want to start with one thing that is often uh, confused in American, uh, in American public life. Uh, we can ask the question, you know, what, is, what do we mean by the left in the 21st century? And I think it's important to distinguish between, on the one hand, social democratic policies of the sort that we find in Europe from a broader socialist agenda that some have have uh, associated with Bernie Sanders and and uh, a growing uh, group of uh, socialist advocates among young Americans. So you know I think it's important to note here that things the Europeans take for granted Americans have yet to receive. Um, you know we don't have uh, we still to this date don't have universal health care. Uh, we don't have free or low cost college. Uh, we have very limited parental leave and childcare benefits. The minimum wage has not been raised uh, for uh, an extended period of time uh, and so forth. So there's a lot of sort of low hanging fruit, public policies that have proved successful in other countries that Americans have yet to, yet to enjoy. Um, and that for the most part, when prompted in surveys, uh, Americans are quite enthusiastic in general about uh, uh, getting these kinds of these kinds of benefits. Where the issue gets trickier is when the idea of having the government, or in particular the federal government, um, uh, administer these these kinds of of these kinds of policies. Um, but in general, there certainly is a, is a strong market for social democracy, um, and. My interpretation of uh, Bernie Sanders' ability to, or the success in getting quite close to the Democratic nomination in 2020 and running very strongly against Hillary Clinton against overwhelming odds in 2016 is really his, his advocacy of social core social democratic policies and his uh, continual pointing to Europe and European countries to make the point that America can have a national health plan, we can have uh, uh, improved social benefits across the board and so forth, um, that uh, this is where, now Sanders self-styles himself a democratic socialist or a socialist, not a social democrat, um, and, but where and when he got traction, I think, is I think largely uh, broad-based uh, 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 support was really in his role as a, as a kind of social democrat. And 
Um, in addition to saying that both these policies are quite popular um, and that there is a political market for them in the future, I want to make the point, which really uh, the sociologist Lane Kenworthy has has promoted in his his has uh, developed in his work, is that we're really kind of slowly creeping towards social democracy um, without fully acknowledging, or at least without fully understanding it. So um, if we look at social policies that have expanded since uh, the Reagan era, um, we have both a broad set of, of expansions of transfer programs, that is income transfer programs that I've listed a bunch on the slide, uh, as well as opportunity programs, uh, programs designed, welfare state style programs designed to give everybody uh, an opportunity to succeed in life. And I would include under this umbrella a wide range of anti-discrimination policies that have and rights extensions. Um, so uh, the, the point here is that we have actually seen uh, social democratic policies uh, emerging. They're often half-hearted and we, if we're moving towards social democracy, it is sort of like a, uh, a snail, uh, maybe a snail with arthritis, um, but the 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 pace at which this is happening is is not trivial. And um, the one exception uh, uh, is the repeal of of uh, the uh, main welfare program that provided uh, benefits to low in, to low income families with children. Um, but but spending on that on related programs actually increased. Um, and that is, I think, the, the one, uh, you know, the one exception here. But otherwise, across a wide range of things, we have been uh, adopting uh, social democratic policies. Okay, so if social democracy has a market, what can we say about um, the broader kind of picture here of what's been happening in American uh, life in the last uh, four decades? So I'm currently writing a book called The Two Inequalities. The basic idea here is that we really want to think about inequality in two ways, um, both in terms of, of uh, economic uh, outcomes, which we might call redistribution following the philosopher Nancy Frazier, who first introduced this distinction in the late 90s, um, versus recognition uh, questions, questions of, of identity, questions of rights, for uh, historically uh, discriminated against groups. And that really there's an, a major disjuncture in both popular support and momentum on each of these questions. Um, but really from the standpoint of thinking about the future of the left, I think it's helpful for us to, to understand that both of these sets of agendas are important and that simply because uh, we, the United States has not responded to rising income inequality does not mean that there have not been ways in which uh, inequality reducing policies have gotten traction. It's just they've been on the identity side of the equation. Um, and I would say I would underscore that I think the left project in the 21st century everywhere has to address racism, sexism, um, identity politics as 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 well as uh, questions about about redistribution. Um, and I would also uh, uh, point to, I think, a really uh, under under read and under noticed uh, uh, contribution to this discussion uh, in a book, a 1986 book called Capitalism and Democracy by Sam Bowles and Herb Gintis, where they make this argument, the argument that if you, as rights get expanded to protect various groups, it actually can set powerful limits on, on capitalism, on markets, on exploitation in ways that can 
can kind of create the conditions for a kind of a merger between a kind of liberal, uh, a classically uh, uh, 21st century liberalism and socialism. And I think that's kind of the, the broader agenda of this, this book project that I'm working on. But uh, when we think about uh, the, the kind of the basic picture here, I think it's fair to say that the left is, uh, the American left is winning on the politics of recognition. That it, uh, if we look uh, across the board, uh, we will see, and I'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, um, we'll see uh, a broad popular uh, opinion, a public opinion shifting in the direction of providing more rights, more equality, um, and, and, and even uh, beginning to recognize or destigmat uh, support for destigmatizing historically stigmatized groups. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to economic inequality, um, there has been a very limited, if any, broad-based public response to the era of rising income inequality that we've seen since the 1980s. Um, as uh, I think everybody probably has heard, the top 1% has more than doubled their share of, of all national income since 1980, and uh, uh, everyone else is either uh, stagnant or seeing uh, uh, declines in their share. Uh, and just, uh, you know, just in terms, of, in terms of the lack of public response, I'm gonna show you one uh, survey item that has been asked uh, repeatedly on an, a nationally representative survey. The, the item asks, uh, respondents, uh, should government have a responsibility to reduce income inequality? Um, and Americans since the 1970s have been remarkably consistent with some bouncing around uh, around a third of a, a point on a seven point uh, uh, scale, uh, uh, have provided a very limited midpoint level support for this item. And there hasn't been any increase since either 1980 or even since 2012. So Occupy Wall Street is on the scene in 2011. There's a market increase in discussion about inequality, economic inequality uh, from that point forward. I have data on this that I could show you in the Q&A if anybody's interested, um, but the red line represents that moment when survey surveys are being fielded after the significant increase in public uh, discussion, media commentary on inequality. Um, and the, if we decompose the results by income groups, um, we really don't see any any trend. So the top, uh, the, tr the black triangles on the top are the bottom third of income households, respond survey respondents from the bottom third, um, and and then the middle third and 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 the and the wealthiest third. And um, you know, again, there's there's no evidence that households on the bottom, households that are we know from other data are struggling. Uh, to pay their bills, live, have experienced high levels of income in, insecurity, and have not seen wages uh, grow at all since uh, since the late 1970s, with a couple of brief exceptions. Uh, the the there is an increased support for this idea of using public policy to address income inequality, and I could show you lots of other items that have a similar kind of trajectory, but this one is. I think kind of the best available repeated item to, to demonstrate this. Um, now, on the other hand, when it comes to recognition, um, there is, I think, a wide range of support for destigmatization policies and rights expansion. Um, this is certainly, I think, most visibly true in the US and, and uh, in many parts of Europe as well, uh, supporting LGBT rights, uh, 
gender equality and and declining support for for traditional sources of of uh, of, uh, of gender inequality have 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 significantly diminished. And, and all groups are kind of moving together. Now, in the US case, race is a complicated story. So on some items, on some questions relating to equal opportunity, we've seen broad public support shifting over time in the direction of more equality. On other kinds of items, particularly items that ask people about hidden resentments of of uh, uh, racial minorities or, or questions about stereotypes. How do you agree or disagree with the set of stereotypes about African-Americans and other groups? There has been no change. And so it's, it's a complicated story with respect to race. But overall, it's hard to say that um, public opinion, even in the Trump era, has moved significantly against support for these uh, uh, broad sets of issues. And in particular, of special note, and I should have gotten the data, but uh, Americans have become more supportive of having immigrants in the country. They've gotten more supportive of the idea that immigrants are good for America. All right, last, uh, last point. So um, American politics, as I think probably everybody knows, has, uh, has become much more divided uh, along partisan lines. That is true, certainly true for uh, partisan elites. Um, uh, members of the US Senate no longer have lunch together uh, across party lines uh, and millions of other examples. Party uh, voting in Congress has become increasingly ideologically or uh, part divided by partisanship. So the, the most liberal uh, Republican is well to the right of the most conservative Democrat for the, really the first time in American history. Uh, that that is that that is true. Um, now, the conventional wisdom is that the way you win elections is by running centrist candidates. You you try to appeal to the center. Now, I want to argue that this, this actually has has not been true on the right, and this is a powerful opening for the American left in the future. That is, so uh, Republicans, uh, Republican Party pushed out moderates. They're they're uh, their version of, of uh, moderates in the from the late 1970s onward. It happens in several stages. Um, but at each of these stages, uh, centrist uh, moderate Republicans have complained about incoming electoral disasters that have never happened. And there's an important lesson here. And I think the lesson is that uh, party capture by the right, that is party capture of the Republican party has not cost them electoral oppor opportunities to control um, the government. So why not the left? Why not uh, the same kind of parallel process? So first off, I think it's already beginning to happen. The virtual disappearance of conservative Southern Democrats has shifted the balance of elected uh, Democrats in, in national politics. Um, secondly, and I think it's it's uh, kind of an underlying force, but it's a real one, uh, which is that uh, for the first time since the 1930s, when uh, the largest uh, 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 groups on the left endorsed the New Deal, as, at least after 1935, um, including the American Communist Party, um, pretty much all left forces and movements now are operating or at least talking about trying to influence policy outcomes through the Democratic Party. There are very few activists anymore investing hopes, time, money, and, and effort in building third parties. 
Um, there are some fusion efforts where you can vote for some Democrats and some uh, working family party uh, candidates. Um, but in most cases, uh, there simply isn't the same kind of energy and effort that had been put into to building uh, uh, a third party. And, and I think this is really true among the younger generation, which is uh, both showing increasing signs of attraction to socialist ideals or left social democratic ideals and has entered the main organization that seeks to influence uh, the Democratic Party from the left, the Democratic Socialists of America, which uh, have, are at an all-time high in terms of membership and support. Um, and there probably are, uh, uh, you know, ways to, to build. So I think in general, if, if I want to kind of wrap up here, I would say that uh, there are opportunities that have emerged and are emerging for for a left to kind of work through the Democratic Party. And I think there are issues where where that left has the potential to both capture the party and also shift public policy. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think we'll just move straight on to our second speaker, Jennifer Epps Edison. Hi, hello everyone. I'm so sad that I can't like see your faces and actually make a real connection to you. But I do come from this beautiful tradition called Black Call and Response. And if anybody has ever been to a black church or maybe you've been to a movie theater where you know the majority of the audience is black, you kind of know what I'm talking about. We like to affirm. So if there is anything that I say that is really intriguing or interesting, feel free to just throw, you know, some hands, some claps, some love in the in the QA. Uh, let me know that you're listening out there and that there's really somebody I'm talking to. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Archer and Professor Mansa, for, you know, being a part of this discussion with me. I think it's really critical, um, you know, and important, especially because, you know, what I'm going to walk through with you in terms of how, uh, what our viewpoint is on how this election was won, how Donald Trump and his brand of racist authoritarianism was defeated um, is not necessarily what you're going to get from sort of the talking head commentators if you're watching, you know, sort of American mainstream news or you're watching the sort of, um, you know, establishment Democratic Party on this sort of post-victory tour. And so I want to be really clear about what this election came down to and who is responsible ultimately for defeating Donald Trump. Um, just, I think, a little bit of context setting for folks. Um, and, you know, Professor Manza, you talked about this so eloquently. Uh, you know, the first thing to understand when we're talking about the victory of Joe Biden um, is we're not talking about a leftist victory per se, right? Or, or about a victory of, an of a leftist, right? Um, Joe Biden is a, a sort of a, the epitome of a neoliberal, right? And part of our network's goal in getting involved in the US presidential elections was not just to defeat authoritarianism or Trumpism, but to also defeat neoliberalism as the sort of key underpinning and source that gave rise and created the space for this brand of authoritarianism to rise in a, democ in a democracy like the United States. And so what folks have to understand is before Trump, right, white supremacy and racism didn't just begin to impact or be ingrained in US policy when Donald Trump was elected. It is at the very foundation of how many of our systems and institutions within government were developed, whether that's our criminal justice, our criminal legal system, which um, is really truly an outgrowth of maintaining the power of, of 
uh, uh, using black bodies and other people of color's bodies, poor bodies as human capital. It grows as an outgrowth of our system of slavery in the United States in almost a direct correlation to the ending of slavery and the beginning of, of sort of the early days of the pr prison industrial com uh, complex in which um, folks who would have been slaves you know, sometimes months or years earlier are now what are called convict leases, uh, right? Folks who were brought in to the prison industrial complex through things like vagrancy laws, poll taxes, um, you know, the, uh, accusations of any white person against them. And then they became, you know, sort of long-term leased labor and capital, which continues today, right? When we think about our healthcare system, it is very much the same thing. It's built um, on sort of a, a system of both exclusion um, and as well as capital, right? The ability to profit off of sort of the most harmful, traumatic parts of people's lives. And so when we're talking about the, the U.S. and sort of the left, right, the left in the U.S. right now um, is, is, you know, people try to define us as radical because we want everybody in the country to have health care, for example, right? Um, this is a main point of disagreement between uh, President-elect Biden and, and myself, right? The idea that uh, there, whether or not it should be allowed to profit off of um, people's need for health care. Um, you know, so I think that's the first thing to understand is what we saw in, in, in this election was a coalition effort, right? A governing coalition of leftists, of centrists, of radicals, of a very small sliver um, of centrist Republicans who changed their vote. But by and large, what the data shows is that folks who voted one way in 2016 primarily voted that same way in, in 2020. Um, you know, and, and so we have, you know, on the left, what we really understood, what we realized sort of post-primary is that we had to make a really sober assessment of our power. And what I think you will see post this election is many uh, sort of factions of the left, right, um, are going to be coming together to be thinking about uh, sort of how do we build strategic power? Because we watched in the primary um, Bernie Sanders be defeated largely because President Obama made a call and got two of the contenders to drop out and endorse Joe Biden and, and basically told the, the neoliberal wing and the centrist wing of the party that it was time to coalesce around Joe, Joe, and this happened right, you know, after South Carolina, right before Super Tuesday, and the left did not do the same thing. Senator Warren stayed in the race, her and uh, Senator Sanders were engaged in very public sort of disagreements and spats that were, um, you know, fraction, uh, factioning off uh, the left um, wing forces in the primary. So this is some of the context, right? And and I want us to sort of understand that. So when we started our resistance to Donald Trump, it was really important to us, even as new people, right, suburban white women in the Women's March and all of that good stuff, we're coming into this idea of being in resistance to your government, right, and being in resistance to the policies of your government. We wanted to make clear that many of the things that we were talking about predated Donald Trump, and we couldn't have a situation in which we defeat Donald Trump in 2020, and then half the you know forces of that election go back to sleep and tens of millions of people are still struggling and left, um, you know, isolated and insecure, that that would set us up for something much worse in 2024. 
So let's, let me tell you what we know about voter turnout. And this is something I'm going to be really proud to say, which is, you know, at the end of the day, when all of the sort of exit polls are analyzed and, and all of the commentating is done, what will be true is that the youngest and the blackest cities in this country were the key to defeating Donald Trump. You know, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, uh, Detroit, Atlanta, it is because of Black and Latinx turnout in these communities that we were able to get over the hump to defeat Donald Trump. When people say that the American electorate is more divided than it's ever been, it's so divided, I think it's really important for us to push back. The white American electorate is deeply divided. And in fact, the majority of that electorate voted for Donald Trump, right? And it, it, it is deeply divided. And, and there's a lot to examine there, right? There is a lot to examine as to why such a strong percentage of white Americans in this country chose to support a racist authoritarian. You know, and largely what people have to understand is that by and large, this country actually is not deeply divided, except for white folks, right? People of color voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. African-Americans voted, uh, women voted 91% uh, for Biden, uh, followed by African-American men voting over 80%, followed by the Latinx community at two thirds of their community, followed by Native Americans and Asian Americans. By and large, um, you know, folks in those communities supported Joe Biden. And so, you know, I think we have to be really clear in, in the context of America because what we are really truly facing is um, a minority, right? A, a, in a deep minority, I think in this election, Donald Trump will have gotten less than, I think five million less votes than Joe Biden. In the previous election in which Donald Trump was named the victor because of the electoral college of vestige of slavery, um, you know, Joe Biden, or sorry, um, Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes uh, in the popular vote than Donald Trump. Um, so this is important to understand. Our strategy at CPD Action, we have a network of grassroots organizations. They, you know, build long-term power in their communities. They're there 365 days a year. Our vision is never just about electing a candidate. Our vision really is about tra transforming the conditions, um, the material conditions of people on the ground in the United States, the public policy, so that people have the ability to truly thrive in this country. Um, but we understand that elections are a part of that scenario. And so our network really analyzed what is our best chance? What is the best or most direct path to defeating Donald Trump? And what we realized two years ago and what we have been saying to every one of the campaigns since then is that we could defeat Donald Trump without getting a single white person to change their vote from 2016 to 2020. That because of the way the electoral system works, that we could focus on seven states that had at least three to four times the number of unregistered but eligible black and brown voters um, needed to secure an electoral victory. So those states are, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, those are considered the blue wall, right? And then uh, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, um, which are considered sort of the transition, right, the new south. And, you know, we really focused hard our energy on engaging those populations. And we saw that play out on election night as those populations came through in record numbers and, and literally overnight, help turn the tide of the election. So exit polls show what we already know that racial justice was one of the most important issues for these voters. Black communities in particular made it a central 
focus of the campaign. Our nation has been in the midst of racial uprisings all summer. I don't know if you have been seeing that, but sparked by a number of deaths. Um, and, and, you know, we have had ongoing and continuous protests in this country. Um, you know, the very people that Trump sought to victimize and oppress over the past four years were the exact same ones that came out in record numbers to defeat him. Now, his base also came out in record numbers. When he told the Proud Boys to stand by, right, in one of the presidential debates, they took heed and they did, right? They organized um, and, and, you know, as Dr. Uh, Professor Manza said, Trump will have received the largest number of votes of any Republican in history, just and, and any candidate in history just behind Joe Biden, right? So we understand that he also uh, mobilized his base. Um, the difference is, is that Trump was mobilizing his base. And in many respects, right, Joe Biden uh, was missing many opportunities to deeply and thoughtfully engage his base. And but for the uniqueness of the fact that the American system not just has political parties, but has grassroots independent organizations that engage in political activity, I think we could have very well lost this election. The folks who were organizing the, the cities, the big cities that ultimately saved democracy, were by and large not Joe Biden's campaign. It was not his strategy, and his strategy was to invest heavily in trying to win back working class white folks uh, votes, which uh, abjectly did not work for his campaign. Um, so who ultimately headed to the polls, you know, uh, we know that um, these communities, black and brown communities, especially indigenous communities have been sort of the um, targets of increasing intimidation and voter suppression and disinformation. That was a strong part of President Trump's reelection strategy. And I think it's important to note one of the things you may be discussing is how did he manage to get more votes in every demographic group, including African-Americans, including Latinx folks, including indigenous communities, um, how did Trump manage to sort of uh, make gains in those ways? And I think, you know, there are sort of three things behind that. There are, you know, a, a minority of, of black and Latinx religious conservatives that were always with Donald Trump. You have to remember in 2016, he also got the largest support of black folks of any Republican candidate since Republicans became the modern version of Republicans. So this is not anything new. You also have a strong number of black capitalists. And we saw black capitalists come out um, towards the end of this election, both with Kanye West running for president as a spoiler candidate in places like Wisconsin, um, hoping to get on the ballot and hoping to be a spoiler candidate. But we saw a number of other black capitalists like Little Wayne and Little Pump and, and many of these sort of uh, celebrity black capitalists who also really, um, Ice Cube is another, right, who also intervened, right, under the sort of auspice that capitalism, right, the ability to make as much money or as extract as much money can be race blind, right? Black people can use it rather than just be used by it. I think by and large, um, that did help uh, President, that the economic aspect did help President Trump increase his uh, numbers, but again, largely that argument was was soundly rejected by most communities of color. Um, and then you have his engagement strategy. And I mentioned that Joe Biden had um, a weak engagement strategy in these communities. We saw the impact of that, particularly with Latino voters. And you have to remember that during the Obama-Biden administration, the common way to, re to refer to President Obama in the Latino community was the deporter in chief, right? And so Joe Biden came into his relationship with this community already at a deficit because of the Obama 
immigration policies and then never really put the effort and energy into into solving those. So when people would say, well, Trump puts babies in cages, there would be Latinos in America with lived experience that would say, well, babies were in cages under Obama too, right? And so there was this, you know, which one is really worse kind of thing happening um, on the ground. Um, so I think that also, it, you know, so that engagement strategy with Trump putting actual money into both the digital engagement and on the ground canvassing did have an impact on Trump um, being able to increase his support. But ultimately, it was the strength of community organizing that made the difference in this election. Um, you know, our network alone, and we were just one small piece of the infrastructure, but we had a program that mobilized 7 million voters in those seven key states um, that were key to swinging the election um, and, you know, really focused on a few things. First of all, one of the biggest things that we had to overcome was the fact that we knew, right, there was going to be high turnout, but we also knew that it could not just be, uh, you know, uh, the most elite of any of the racial demographics, right? So, you know, Professor Manza talked about sort of this class inversion. And, you know, one of the things we really worried about was a class inversion that went, that sort of uh, was equal across race, right? Because by and large, um, at least in previous elections, uh, you know, wealthy Black folks vote the same way that struggling and poor Black folks vote, right? And if we had some major sort of class inversion um, you know, within any one of those major demographics, we could be in real trouble. Um, and, you know, so by and large, what we saw is that the class inversion really was a, a white phenomenon. Um, you know, the African American community, again, yes, there were some gains in, in the black capitalist class, but not, you know, not significant. I think we saw most of those gains, um, you know, with Latino men. Um, but again, there was not a significant class inversion, meaning um, working class and poor Latino uh, men uh, did not overwhelmingly support Trump versus uh, wealthier um, Latino men. Um, we contacted, you know, the other thing we really focused on was men, right, men of color. And so we contacted specifically 4 million black and brown men um, in Florida and Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, some of the areas where we knew that this, where we knew Trump had actual people on the ground knocking doors for his campaign. Um, I think that was a really critical decision that we made halfway through this election because we're in the middle of COVID and, you know, many people had pulled their field programs out of the field in March. Um, and that meant people who were used to getting three or four or five or six or seven knocks on the door and having all of those opportunities to engage with the election, to understand issues, to make sure their registration was good, did not have that level of support. So when you think about the fact that most of our programs had to pull out of the field back in March and really didn't go back into the field until late July as the uprisings were happening and people were saying we're in the streets anyway, we've learned enough to be able to keep our folks safe, we understand what PPE we need, um, folks really didn't go back into the field till late July. And so, you know, I think that is another reason why this election appeared to be closer than it was because President Trump never pulled his canvassers in those same communities that are not used to seeing Republicans on the ground, right? He never pulled them out and they got a lot of that contact uh, from those folks before and more consistently than they got it um, from us. Um, so let's talk about where we go from here, right? So the thing that we need folks to say loudly and proudly, and you know, there is this discussion as Professor Manza said, there is this discussion about whether or not 
we have a, a coup underway. Um, and what, you know, at this point, at this point, we think that it is important to say that the, the, it, the democratic institutions are strong and that, you know, while we expected, we scenario planned for this exact moment. And it is, you know, sort of my, I'm 38, um, but I, it's mind blowing to me, right? That I'm, I was literally in the midst of planning whether or not the sitting president would leave office peacefully. I never imagined, you know, as I was going through civics class <laughs> growing up that we would be in this kind of a predicament in the United States, but this is what we find ourselves in. And we, you know, we scenario plan this election. We said, what are the ways that they're going to try to prevent people from voting? Because we know that if all of our people get voted and get those votes counted, we will win. So we scenario plan that and we defeated them on election day, right? in the run-up in the institutions. And now we're in this phase of making sure that every that we guard and protect every one of those votes. And so, you know, what we know is that even with the legal challenges that this administration is raising, they may be able to shave off a few votes here, maybe get rid of a few provisional ballots there in Pennsylvania, maybe 30,000 ballots, you know, that, that arrived in that gray area that the court said, we'll wait, we'll rule later after the election about, right? Um, but ultimately, um, we did our job well, and we believe that the results of this election will be preserved. And we believe, at least at this point, that we, despite the Republican blabbering, right, that we are, you know, we are able to hold off a coup. And, you know, I think it's really critically important that we say that and that people understand clearly that the institutions are working, that there has been no credible allegations of widespread fraud, um, that, you know, people participated, uh, you know, and in record numbers, and we were able to hold that as a democracy, largely because what we saw in foreign elections um, over the last several years, the rise of authoritarianism was not just a U.S. phenomenon. I think you in the U.K. obviously, um, you know, have felt that, but also Hungary, um, you know, also Brazil, right? Um, Russia. So there, there is a, there is a real, you know, we were feeling a real immense pressure um, in, in our elections, the left in particular, right? Even as we didn't have the candidate of our dreams, we sort of understood that a, a, a true victory, a victory in the electoral college for Trump um, would not just have impacts on the way that he would govern here in America, but it would add and bolster the rise of authoritarianism globally, which, you know, I think really puts all of our countries at extreme risk. Um, and so we took that really seriously and it was something that we wanted to focus on. So where do we go from here? Let me just sort of wrap up and end with this, which is, you know, it is clear to us that the, that the left, particularly the black left, right? I wanna, I wanna be clear about that. There's the US left, there is the black left in the US. Um, and, you know, I would put Maurice Mitchell, who is the um, director of the Working Families Party, which Professor Manza named, as part of the, you know, clear leadership of a new generation of Black leftists in the United States, trying to um, bring about political power in the, you know, sort of framework of Huey Newton and Stokely Car Carmichael and even Malcolm X. Um, but the Black left played a key role. Um, black women were the decisive role, right, in, in this election. And so now we move to a, a Biden-Harris administration that is going to inherit a, 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 you know, a massive financial crisis that is going to inherit a situation in which somewhere between 20 and 30 million people are eight months late on their rent and mortgages, 
uh, who will have a moratorium be lifted under the Biden administration and have no way to pay back that money. So we're facing a massive eviction crisis. They'll inherit um, a, a, an economy in which somewhere between 50 and 60 million people will be filing unemployment claims. Um, they're inheriting a pandemic in which the health infrastructure in the country is wholly unprepared to deal with the crisis. It's why, despite, um, you know, it's why we've had such terrible outcomes, despite the rest of the world uh, being able to make progress and gains. Um, and so the Biden administration will inherit all of this. And I think if they maintain their position, nothing will fundamentally change status quo, let's go back to normal, we're going to be in a, you know, sort of both in a world of hurt, it will be insufficient, wholly insufficient to, uh, to turn the tide in our country, it may, you know, be wholly insufficient to be able to prevent mass municipal bankruptcies with our uh, mid, you know, mid to large size cities uh, facing bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, ultimately, it could create the sort of uh, real true traumatic conditions, people waiting in food lines, people, you know, losing their homes, people, uh, you know, uh, sort of mass criminalization to deal with uh, you know, drug addiction and the opioid crisis and a whole host of things that will be tangential to that pain. Um, and if we are not able to push Biden's administration to make big, bold and structural changes, it could set the, um, you know, table for not just the Trump return in 2024, but, you know, for a sort of a return bigger, badder and stronger and with a much wider bench um, in terms of being able to influence the institutions of governance. So we are going to really organize to push this administration. Um, you know, the first thing that we're going to do, and, and, I'll, and I'll end with this, which is, you know, we have, unlike, you know, other countries, we have provided no, nearly no help to Americans during this pandemic. I know, like, it probably blows your mind, but there's been no guaranteed income here. Uh, there's been no maintaining employment roles by paying payroll directly. There's been no opening up in, of accessibility to health care. People are really struggling in this country. Um, and I have watched uh, members, you know, one organization of ours in New York has seen 33 of their members die from COVID. They have turned into a makeshift, um, you know, uh, response unit where they're literally helping people track down bodies because the morgues are so overwhelmed, people can't find their loved ones after they pass away. Um, you know, I've seen lines around the block, right? It's not just like we can't find toilet paper, people can't afford to buy food. And so, you know, we have a real obligation to use this moment, not just to, you know, say, yay, we defeated Trump and acquiesced to neoliberalism. As leftists, we have uh, a huge responsibility to use this moment and to work just as hard under a Biden-Harris administration to build the country of our dreams, to build a country where everybody can thrive, as we have over the last four years under Trump's administration, trying to protect ourselves and keep our loved ones alive. That's our responsibility, and I think that's where the U.S. left will go next. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm just going to ask a, a question to you both and then I'm going to turn it over to the audience. Um, I'll try and be succinct and I think maybe we get a, a few extra questions in that way. So I'll, I'll start with you, Professor Manza. I mean, often when people look, take the long view of American electoral politics, they see long periods of stability punctuated by moments of realignment. 
And I guess my question to you is, what does all the what do all the trends that you've discussed add up to? Do they actually add up to such a moment? Is it a moment of realignment in the way that the 1930s is said to be, or the 1890s is said to be, or is it a more complicated picture that doesn't really fit with that characterization? Yeah, it's uh, it's a really good and important question, and I think the the you know my read of kind of where we are is that uh, we are. Uh, uh, several election cycles away from the potential realignment that comes with true demographic uh, uh, change in the electorate. White Americans will likely be a minority of the population by 2050 or somewhere like uh, in that in that range. Um, that's partly dependent on whether Latinos, Latinxes can become white. Uh, or how many, be, uh, you know, consider themselves white in the future. Um, but, but I think we are seeing an ongoing shift that is, uh, you know, likely to produce, I think, a pretty dramatic electoral shift in the future along the lines of what happened in California, um, you know, where for, I mean, I grew up in California and in my childhood, I'm older, significantly older than Jennifer. Um, you know, in my childhood, Republicans ran the state. Uh, they controlled the state legislature. We had Reagan, we had Pete Wilson, we had, uh, you know, uh, George Dubay, and we had, you know, Republican governors. And now the state is seeing this demographic shift really take hold. Um, the Democratic Party dominates uh, politics, California is also, you know, at the edge of a whole set of interesting policy initiatives that, you know, are, it's difficult to do everything you might want at the state level in the American system, uh, federal system. But I think, you know, the California outcome here may, uh, we may be 15 or 20 years away from nationally. The other thing that I would say is that uh, this conservative dilemma that I talked about, you know, how do you win elections? when you promote policies that serve the interests of only a few. And, you know, one way you do it is obviously trying to divide people along lines of, of race or religion. Uh, uh, and and uh, that, I think, has kind of probably run its course because this transition is also kind of moving away from the kinds of, uh, you know, people who bought into this kind of politics, right? So, you know, evangelicals are, 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 are falling as a percentage of the population. Uh, we have more seculars, more, uh, you know, religiously liberal people. We have, uh, uh, you know, the shift of, of older white voters uh, to, to uh, well, to die. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, replaced by younger voters who are much more diverse and, you know, I think that shift is, but I think we're still a few, you know, cycles away. And what Trump was able to do was kind of um, freeze history by, uh, you know, by the use of, of racially charged anti-immigrant rhetoric to kind of hold, to kind of increase the white share of the Republican vote. But that, that can only go so far. And, you know, among college educated whites and, you know, among union, unionized white households, uh, there's there's a kind of upper limit here on how far it can go, and I think uh, I think this may be the the kind of the top of the cycle for this style of what uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson call plutocratic populism, um, at least in a two-party system. You know, which I think is something we, neither of us really mentioned, but is important for a European audience. The the two-party system is part of 
you know, the unique aspect of American politics. And, you know, part of why, I mean, one logical outcome here would be for Trump to split away from the Republican Party and form a third, you know, a third party movement um, and, and, you know, uh, be competitive, I think, in at least in challenge, you know, challenging predominance on the right. But instead, he kind of goes through through the uh, the Republican Party, creating this this dynamic that, uh, you know, I think has succeeded, you know, in maintaining their electoral viability in the short run. But in the long run, they've got a big problem. And that, that's where I think the California outcome is perhaps, um, you know, more likely. Okay, look, thanks a lot. Um, so, Jennifer, um, I, I want to pick up on what you were saying in the middle of your comments about organizing strategies. Um, and that's obviously something you're very involved in and very invested in. I mean, looking at it from outside, there are a number of states where long-term organising that fed into the election but was not only about the election seems to have paid off. Now, from outside, it looks to me like maybe in Georgia, maybe especially in Arizona. But you listed a number of other states, and they were not all states where this electoral payoff was seen. So is there something you can say about what was distinctive about those states, you know, maybe with the, the mind of people in other countries who would be thinking about this kind of organising effort? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, again, you're right. I, it is my central hypothesis that the depth of long-term organising um, and the scale in which it was invested in really directly correlates to how many votes people were able to turn out um, and ultimately to places that won. Um, but I, what I would caution is to say, you know, I look at somewhere like Texas or Florida, for example, um, Georgia, right, and Arizona, uh, Nevada, even to some extent, right? These, Colorado is another place, right? These are places where, um, you know, there is a real constant, like, con contestion for power. Um, you know, not just sort of the federal electorate, but like really, truly on the ground. Um, you know, they are a place where we see the racial divides, the opportunity um, divides, the, the wealth divides to be, you know, incredibly pronounced, right? Having some of the most wealthy and some of the poorest, right? Um, you know, having, a, you know, an like an incredibly diverse state. Uh, so, you know, I think here's what I really, truly think. If we would not have had those strong community organizations like New Florida Majority, Majority Organized Florida, Texas Organizing Project, Lucha in Arizona, if we would not have had these strong community organizing groups running the incredible program they, they would have ran, it would have been much easier for Trump to defeat Biden in the election because he could have focused pretty much all of his energy on the blue wall, right? On where we knew we were all going to compete. Biden telegraphed his strategy. We knew his strategy was Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And so did Trump. And if Trump could have focused all of his energy and intention there, um, we could have been in real trouble if he could have squeaked out another 6 to 8% of Black votes out of Milwaukee or Detroit. Um, I think we could have been in trouble. And so, you know, I think that the, st the states that came close but didn't get over the hump are equally as part as much a part of this story as the states that kind of squeaked by. Um, but, you know, let's go to Georgia for a second, because Georgia is going to be really telling. Obviously, you know, I was on the ground for Stacey Abrams gubernatorial race. I saw it firsthand the immense amount of voter suppression at the hands of then Secretary of State Kemp right, who was in charge of administering the election he was went running for governor in, 
I just want people to hear that again. I want you to understand what happened in Georgia, right? The person administering the election was also the candidate and he got to control the election and count his votes. I just want to, okay, so now we're all there. What happened in Georgia? Um, but, you know, I look at the fact that our affiliate New Georgia project was started by Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams then obviously went on to run for governor and, and then start Fair Fight. Um, but, you know, it was her analysis that Georgia has is homegrown. It has all it needs to have a better, you know, more a safer community, everything it needs. But the suppression and the lack of participation from particularly black voters, but voters of every background was critical to maintaining Republican rule. And so she set upon the idea to register as many people as possible, particularly black folks. And so we, you know, we see that happening, but you can't register people and then not give them a reason to vote, right? They're not hopeful, they're not, they don't have an aspiration. And so we had to have conversations and this is the difference. What New Georgia Project did is they weren't, they didn't just go say, you have to vote, go vote for Biden, Biden's your only choice. They really engaged in this like long-term process of having conversations with people. What are you struggling with? What are your hopes and aspirations? You know, what do you want to see happen in the world? And it gave people this sense that not only could, would their vote matter, but actually their participation, their voice, their story of struggle, that those types of things matter. And so when people say, can we sustain it? Um, you know, I have to remind people it was never about the election, right? We don't have to, like, it's been sustained. This is ongoing work. And as we turn our attention back to these two uh, Senate candidates, the thing that I think is really important for the left, um, but really important for the establishment Democrats is to not screw it up, right? As soon as the races were called, we had establishment Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, you know, um, a great speaker of the House, but maybe shouldn't, you know, be directing people how to organize Georgia. We should leave that to Georgians, right? Um, you know, uh, but we had folks saying, stay away from leftist issues, Black issues like defund the police, that's going to lose us Georgia. Meanwhile, the candidate that you are running, particularly Reverend Warnock, is the, is the uh, pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King's old church, right? He, you know, he ran on a social justice platform. He got the most votes in his primary, not by playing to the center, not by downplaying his commitment to health care, not by downplaying his, uh, you know, commitment to Black Lives Matter, but by leading with that and building a multiracial working class coalition in Georgia capable of defeating the immense amount of voter suppression that the governor and the secretary of state uh, put in their way. So I think Georgia, you know, if you want to help with Georgia, you can get on calls, right? You can send text messages. We're currently registering 18-year-olds, folks who will be 18 before the election, who are going to be allowed to vote for the first time. We are, you know, we're working closely with New Georgia Project. But, you know, the test about whether we win Georgia will be, will, you know, will establishment Democrats get in the way, um, pushing a neoliberalism that was not the, the linchpin for why Atlanta had 128% voter turnout? Oh, no, I think Robin might be frozen. <laughs> I think we, oh, there you Hi. are. Hi. Are we back? Hello, hello. Back. Yep. Now we've got to just find out what that question was. So there's a, there's a question from, um, from Evan Webb, who's an LSE student. And, and uh, uh, the, the questioner asks, looking at the election map, there seems to be a huge divide between urban and rural voters. What, if anything, can the Democratic Party do to reach rural voters? I think I'll just direct these to one person so we get through some more questions. So actually, um, Jeff, would you mind just briefly addressing that? 
Yeah, I mean, historically, you know, this was not the case from the 30s to the 70s that, uh, you know, the Democrat Democratic candidates were very competitive. Um, the creation of a whole set of programs to support farmers uh, and when farmers were still, I mean, only about 2% of the population is engaged in farming or farm labor today. But, um, you know, that this hasn't always been the case. Um, I have actually been been uh, you know reading and thinking about some of the rural you know the rural population's aversion to liberalism the left the Democratic Party it's real um, people blame the federal government for uh, economic decline in rural areas which is which is really you know hitting some parts of the country some rural places are in you know severe decline where there are no jobs hopelessness is is extremely high. Uh, there's a uh, uh, famous, uh, two famous economists just brought out a book called The Deaths of Despair about the rising uh, percentage of middle-aged people in rural communities who are dying of drug overdoses, alcohol overdoses, uh, have a sense of hopelessness and, and severe mental health issues. Um, so, so the question is, you know, it's not, uh, 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 you know, there's no one answer to the to the puzzle, but um, somehow there's a disconnect between the kinds of policy initiatives that the Democratic Party as a whole and certainly the kind of social democratic left would like to see um, and how those might benefit rural communities and what the understanding of people in those communities really are and their deep hatred of the federal government at the same time that they do love the fact that there's Medicare when they reach 65 or that they do love that there is, uh, you know, there are unemployment programs that, that uh, at least provide, you know, some benefits for some people under some, you know, conditions. I actually think it's a really interesting question also to ask Jennifer whether, you know, you've thought about this and, and whether, you know, are there ways that we could find a, a way to bridge the sort of urban-based uh, people or communities of color with the rural uh, white population, or they're mostly white, about 85% of rural residents are white, you know, and in some, some ways there are a lot of overlapping issues that, you know, if there was a way to kind of make that connection and sort of bring people together who share interests, uh, you know, that would be a way of, of bending the stick the other direction. We talk about class of uh, inversion. I mean, this would be, you know, sort of trying to find ways to reconnect voters who are, his, you know, uh, currently very uh, disadvantaged in a wide variety of ways. Okay, look, rather than answer that, I'm just gonna try and get in another question because, um, and, and feel free to sort of tack it on if you want to. So I've, I've got uh, another question here from uh, Tobias Wendel, uh, an LSE alumnus who's um, calling in from Germany and asks, and I'll just direct it to you, um, Jennifer, how can the Democratic Party shift to social democracy before the next right-wing authoritarian is elected, and how in particular can the left overcome deep-rooted beliefs about the links between personal and economic freedom? So I think the questioner is referring to what is often a person in the streets understanding of the commitment to a certain notion of liberalism in the United States, which is deeper than just the neoliberalism you're talking about. Yeah, well, that's the million dollar question right there. I mean, <laughs> I'm working on it. Uh, you know, look, first and foremost, like Americans have to deal with race. 
it is, you know, the, the level of racial animosity um, and the sort of fundamental um, in sort of, you know, foundation of white supremacy in this country is unsustainable as a practice, right? The, the my, sort of a minority of ideological, um, you know, viewpoints ruling over the rest of us is an unsustainable way to practice democracy. And so like we in the coming years are going to have to like come to terms with this. We're gonna have to have a conversation about the electoral college as a vestige of slavery and maintaining the power, right? We're gonna have to like grapple with the fact that we, you know, uh, consider one vote in Wyoming more important than 4 million in California, right? And that the, that vote in Wyoming is 93 or 8% likely to be a white person, where the vote in California is 60 something percent likely to be a person of color, right? We, we have to grapple with this as a country. And so whoever, right, wants to hope to sort of save off the ability to divide and conquer and pick folks off and break apart the sort of governing coalition that Joe Biden was able to form um, is going to try to prevent us from dealing with that, right? Like it's going to be to their benefit if we don't. So I think that's one piece. But the, you know, on the question of race, look, look, first of all, I think when people look at the map and it's like a sea of red and a couple of blue spots on the sides, it freaks you out. You're like, oh my God, there's so many people who like are red. The reality is, is that most of that is land. Like I want land does not vote. Um, and really you like, it's really important to understand that like the, the idea that sort of it's all urban or all, you know, suburban, like a lot of it is just land, right? It's not actually, you know, a mass amount of people. Um, but that being said, what, you know, growing up in Wisconsin, growing up in a state that's 91% white and, and the, the birthplace of the progressive movement in America, like understanding our history, the progressive movement was birthed out of farm workers and factory workers who came together because corporate interests were running rugshot over the state and harming both of them. And that's a really powerful lesson for all of us who want a country where people truly are free, where people can truly thrive and not just survive. And so, you know, it requires us on the left not to just sort of be reactionary, not to just hate our oppressors out of hate, but to actually realize that if white supremacy is a noose around the neck of communities of color, then it has been a knife in the back of white communities in this country, right? It's why folks are struggling the way they are, particularly with the opioid crisis, particularly now with the pandemic. And so, you know, it requires us to have those conversations, but we aren't going to, you know, the, the reality is the social media um, and the fact that now people can create echo chambers where they are completely insulated from anybody of a differing opinion, much less a, di a different background, is truly problematic. So if you if you want to know how does the Democratic Party make that shift, right, um, it really is. We have to invest in the same kind of long-term organizing for power in those rural communities as we do right now in urban communities and communities of color, right? We have to do it in an explicitly anti-racist way but we still have to do it. And then, you know, just to the question of how do we become a social democracy? I mean, here's the thing, and, and Professor Manza has said this as well, the majority of the policies of leftists and progressives are the most popular policies in the country. In the Democratic primary, when even when that primary went for Joe Biden, right? When, when voters were asked, Democratic voters were asked, would you like the country to move to a single payer healthcare system? 
overwhelmingly in every single primary that asked that question, the answer was yes, right? The vast majority of people in this country support raising the minimum wage to a, a minimum of $15 an hour, but you now have growing support to see it over $20 an hour, like it is in most European countries, right? Um, you know, we, we dealing with climate change is another one where there is mass support to do something about the climate crisis, very little political will. So I think, you know, under like the U.S. left, our goal here was about changing the conditions in the playing field that we are operating under. Right. We understood that Biden is a better opponent for us than Trump was. And so now we are like in the in the sort of mode of, of saying, OK, now we've got to get to work here on some of these things that we have disagreements about. And I think, look, we won't you know, in the next four years, are we going to see a single payer health care system in the United States? I don't think so. But if we win the Senate, if we win Georgia, I think we will see a public option in the United States, which I fought for in 2008, which got dismissed right away. And to me, that is power, right? That is growth. That is a demonstration that the left's ideas are salient. And if we're willing to stick with them and continue to push them, that we can win them. Okay. Um, now, look, I'm really going to try and squeeze in at, at least one other question, perhaps two. Um, so the, the, the questioner here, uh, John Newman, a, a graduate of the University of London, asks a simple question. What lessons should the British Labor Party draw from the US election? Um, and uh, I think that's, that's quite a big question. Let me just put a spin on it for you and, and direct it to, to Jeff Manza. I mean, you, you spoke about... Um, the fact that white men, especially white working class men, had moved towards the Republicans. Something parallel to that happened in the British general election. And it's it's ascribed to various things. But one of the things it's ascribed to is the, the lack of centrism on the part of the Labor candidate. And yet Joe Biden was a centrist candidate. So could, could you address the questioner's question perhaps with that in mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I am 100% in agreement with everything Jennifer just said about uh, Biden and his centrism. And But I also would want to point out that the Democratic Party platforms have been getting more progressive at every turn. Hillary Clinton was way more progressive in, in 2016 than she was in 2008. Joe Biden's platform is more progressive. Like there is an influence. Like, so there is a way in which Joe Biden is less of a centrist now than he was in 1994 or earlier. Um, so that, that's point number one. Um, and I think, well, it is certainly true that, um, you know, he, he certainly does not embody a progressive left tradition in any meaningful way. He's been a lifelong politician who was planning to run for president at age 29, according to his biography. Um, so, so, you know, I think the lessons for the Labour Party in Britain I mean, there's, you know, one complication is a two-party system means there's nowhere for uh, disaffected voters to go. Um, you have, you know, a, 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 a political space that's slightly more complicated. And it may be the case that one of the things that has been keep propping up the Democratic Party in recent years um, are those college-educated voters who may be voting for the Liberal Democrats. And this is really more of a question for Robin. But, um, you know, in the American space, if you decide you are appalled and alienated from, uh, you know, the Republican agenda, your only meaningful choice if you care to, uh, you know, have an impact on elections is to vote for, for the other party. Um, so, you know, that's, that's an issue. I mean, I think that, um, you know, more generally, 
it's not that the kind of social democratic policy agenda is unpopular per se, but the reputation of it has declined across, we can see this across Europe, um, and even in the US where uh, government itself has become a source of, of opposition. And I think somehow we need to help spread the message or, or help people understand that um, when we talk about redistributive programs that try to benefit everybody and try to secure a decent standard of living for everyone, that the government plays a role, but it isn't, it isn't the kind of thing that I think a lot of people uh, perceive it to be. And I think that's the challenge I think the Labour Party has uh, in the UK, the Democratic Party has in the US, uh, social democratic parties across the world have in restoring confidence in the idea of government administration of these programs. I think it's particularly severe in the US and, and I sense in the UK as well. Thank you. Um, so I think this will have to be the last question, um, if I can address it to you, Jennifer. So it's it's from Yasmin um, in London, and um, she refers to the distinction you made at points between establishment Democrats and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and she'd like to know how you see the relationship between those things developing over the next four years, and also how the the movement in general harnesses the enthusiasm that has emerged behind the progressives. That's such a great question. Um, I just want to shout out somebody in the chat talked about U.S. imperialism and, and whether Biden would be likely to start more wars. And I, I just want to say we are definitely concerned about U.S. foreign policy, drone policy in particular, and are looking at that as, as something we have to watch out for um, under a Biden administration. So I just want to say I hear I hear that. Um, you know, on to the question about sort of the direction of the party and where it's heading. I mean, Look, I would encourage everybody to, you know, read the article that um, AOC just dropped, where she talks about her offering to help Democrats with their digital programs, with their voter outreach programs, and how all but, um, you know, I think five of the House uh, Democrats that were up for election accepted her help. Um, and, you know, I, I really, truly believe, I mean, now especially but because of COVID, but even before COVID, um, that the Democrats were sort of running on a, on a, um, a very old time model and, and needed to sort of update their modeling and like get comfortable with the changing demographics in their base. But I think that is going to be even more clear after this election because you're going to have a lot of people who participated, some for the first time and some who had to be drugged back because of how bad Trump is, but really just did not want to have to vote for another Democrat. And it was really challenging for them to do so, who are going to put a ton of their efforts into both transforming Congress by challenging and primarying, um, you know, more centrist Democrats, Democrats that don't fully represent the values of, of you know, their communities or their states. I think we're going to see more people um, who live in majority people of color districts that have white congressional um, you know, representation challenging those uh, challenging those folks um, from the left, right, um, as leftists of color, like AOC. Um, and I think that is a good thing, um, because certainly we actually need more leftists of color in power, um, because oftentimes what has sort of been the, the uh, sort of linchpin for neoliberal policy has come through neoliberals of color, folks like President Obama or Susan Rice, 
Um, and so for us, I think we need an AOC, a Jamal Bowman, a Cori Bush, who's a Black Lives Matter activist and will now be the first Black Congresswoman from Missouri. Um, we really need that type of energy. So I think you're going to see more struggles. I do think because of the um, congressional losses, it may actually be an opportunity for the left here because uh, Nancy Pelosi will need to carry more of the Democratic caucus in order to move policy forward. Uh, and progressives will effectively ha have, if not the largest caucus in the, within the Democratic Party, larger than the Black caucus, larger than the Latinx caucus, for example, um, or the Hispanic caucus, for example, because progressives will have one of the largest caucuses, we could see progressives playing a much more Tea Party-like, um, you know, game inside the halls of Congress, where sort of in this, you know, previous administration, they had been really relegated to the to the bold ideas, right, to sort of putting out messaging bills that were signaling the direction we wanted to head, but not really having a lot of power to move those things forward. I think we'll see that there will be more power to at least block or amend um, traditional democratic policies. And I think if we do, if we are able to win on some of those things, it will inspire more and more people to to move forward. Ultimately, let me just say this, though, which is, I want the Democratic Party to just represent the values of its base. As Professor Manza said, the platform has become increasingly more progressive. Many of the things that we're struggling and fighting for are, at, you know, against de Democrats are actually in the platform, right? And so instead of seeing us as activists, as a thorn in their side or as a, outside of the party or outside of their interests, you know, I think one thing Democrats could learn from Trump is that your base and the people who are in the streets defending your ideals are actually your friends. Like those are actually the people you should be governing with. So I'm hoping that's what emerges post-election. I'm a little nervous about what I've seen so far, but we're going to keep working on it. Listen, thank you both very much. I mean, we've heard um, a, a range of interesting comments about the election from Jennifer Epps Addison. I think we heard at the beginning the argument that Trumpism was really rooted in longer term processes, processes connected to neoliberalism. And she emphasised the importance of a strategy of organisation and especially the organisational work of the left and most especially of the black left, which she argued had brought about the outcome which we see now, and that that creates a moment to address some of these root problems. And we heard from Jeff Manza that Trumpism was rooted in the solution to a dilemma of electoral conservatism. I think we're used to hearing about the dilemma of electoral socialism, but here we heard about the dilemma of electoral conservatism. But that in spite of that, the two inequalities that he referred to have been shifting with uneven gains in different respects. But at the end of the day, he was able to characterise a situation as creeping towards social democracy. So I think we've heard from our speakers something that is elements of optimism um, at the same time as many th points of caution. And I'd just like to end by, on behalf of all of us here, thanking you both very much indeed for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you very much.